0: very warm welcome everybody uh, you probably know that we've more than filled out this lecture theatre there are some people unfortunately that can't get in and we can't because of fire regulations allow anybody more into the theatre uh, my name is Stuart Corbridge I'm one of the pro directors here at LSE and it's a very great pleasure to welcome all of you to the school tonight uh, for this evening's discussion which of course will be led by Professor Paul Preston on the topic of Franco's terror in a European context the vaults ...that got away. Uh, Now's the time, please, if you could just turn your phones to silent. But you are very welcome to tweet, and I gather the hashtag is LSEWorks. Let me give you a little bit of background. We have, we think, the best public events program in the world here at LSE. Uh, Very often, of course, we're hosting people from outside the school, quite rightly. But we do like to showcase our own talent. We have 22 (laughs) academic departments and a very large number of research centres. And the idea of LSE Works, which is a rather punning title, of course, is that we're trying to demonstrate that LSE does work and that it makes available some of its knowledge, particularly from the research centres, to a broader audience, something the government is very keen on at the moment. So the setup of these sessions is that we usually have a key speaker. That's Paul, of course and then a number of respondents. And we're lucky to have uh, three colleagues with us tonight, and I'll introduce them in a moment. Uh, Paul Preston, of course, is our lead speaker tonight, and he really does need very little in the way of introduction. Uh, Paul is a fellow of the British Academy. He's the director of the Canada Blanche Centre for Contemporary Spanish Studies here at LSE, and he's the author of many, many outstanding books and articles, uh, particularly on Spain, including most recently, and I've been reading it. I told Paul I'm about halfway through because that's a very large number of end notes at the end of the book, um, his book, The Spanish Holocaust, which uh, he will be drawing on tonight. And this is a book that's had a very, very major impact, of course, in the field of contemporary history and particularly in Spain. So we're very pleased that we're going to have a discussion around how this book has worked and travelled here tonight, Paul has also been, of course, honoured for his work, uh, not least in Spain, including in 2007, uh, when he was presented with the Grand Cross of the Orden de Isabel la Católica. Paul's three respondents tonight, uh, before we turn to question and answers, are Dr. Daniel Beer, who is a senior lecturer in modern European history at Royal Holloway College, the University of London and who is the author of Renovating Russia, The Human Sciences and the Fate of Liberal Modernity. We're then going to turn to Professor Dan Stone, who's also of Royal Holloway College, and himself the author, most recently, I think this year, of The Holocaust, Fascism and Memory. Uh, and then we have uh, Professor Helen Graham, also a historian at the Royal Holloway College, which has been emptied of its talent tonight, clearly, and herself, the author most recently of The War and Its Shadows Spain's Civil War in Europe's Long 20th Century. So, without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Paul, and then rather than interrupt proceedings, we're going to go one by one to our respondents, and then we'll open it up to everybody in the audience. So, a very warm welcome to Paul Preston.
1: Thank you all for, for coming. Um, I ought to get glasses that allow me to see what I'm doing. Which almost helps. Probably these don't work either, but anyway. No, no good. Anyway, so I'll have to make it up as I go along. The first thing I think I need to do is to explain a little about the title. Obviously, as I'm sure you all know, The Volksgemeinschaft was the term used by the Nazis to describe what they thought of as those Germans who had a right to exist, the national community. And we've used, in fact it was Helen's idea, we've used the term in the context of of what happened in Spain during and after the Civil War, using it in this way, the, the Volksgemeinschaft that got away because... So few people make the connection between what happened in Spain and what was being done by the Nazis and, indeed, by other fascisms. Stuart very kindly made a reference there to my book, The Spanish Holocaust. And when I was preparing that book or doing the research for it, in which over many years I'd been in collaboration with Helen Graham and, of course, with, with other people, many Spaniards who've worked with me at the Cana Blanc Centre here at the LSE, I felt a certain degree of trepidation about using the word Holocaust in uh, a Spanish context. But I did so very deliberately. I knew it was going to be provocative, and I wanted to be provocative because I wanted to draw attention to two things – in the first place for years almost as long as I've been active as an academic I've been very aware of the immensely good press that General Franco and his regime still receive right the way through my career and still to this day receive in the media in the Anglo-Saxon world I mean there are obvious reasons why that is the case I mean clearly in the case of Spain itself since Franco was never defeated in an international war, there was never an occupation by the democratic powers. There was never a process of denazification in Spain. Instead, what there was, from certainly in all of Spain from 1939 onwards, but in, in those parts of Spain which were conquered by the military rebels right from 1936 <laughs> onwards, was a process, a linked process of terror. And Brainwashing, and so, within Spain itself, for those who were excluded from what we 're calling here the, the Spanish Volksgemeinschaft, what in Spain was always called was called Spain as against la anti the anti Spain which was the other half the, the, the on to mention those who were considered not fit to belong to Spain, the victims. So it's it's hardly surprising that the Franco regime managed to generate a very good press for itself um, during his lifetime, but that has carried on. And internationally, of course, it was relatively easy because in international terms, and particularly during the Cold War, Franco was considered a valuable ally. So one of the things I wanted to do was to draw attention to the fact that Franco was not quite the Mother Teresa of, uh, among dictators, which is often um, portrayed as. And secondly, and of course the two things are linked, I wanted to draw attention to the sheer scale of the suffering and the death that took place in Spain, in my view, unnecessarily Now, I said a minute ago that when I opted to use the title Spanish Holocaust, I, at first, felt a degree of trepidation. I was rather surprised, in fact, that both in Spain and elsewhere, the reaction was, there was very little in the way of negative reaction. In Spain... The book has generated somewhere in the region of a a thousand articles in both the print and the digital media and only a tiny handful have taken issue with the use of the title or the use of the word Holocaust in the title and then for the rather bizarre reason that what happened in Spain was not the same scale as the final solution as the Shoah. Well of course I, I knew that I specifically state in the book that the point is not to compare what Franco did with what happened in every country of occupied Europe. Spain was a country in 1936 of just over 26 million inhabitants. What happened to the Jews and the Gypsies and the Communists and all the other opponents of the Nazi regime took place among many hundreds of millions of people. So the the main criticisms actually were to do with scale um, I did get a certain amount of rather amusing hate mail in uh, the UK one in particular from somebody who said that for me to use the word Holocaust in this context proved without a doubt that I must be a neo-Nazi I have to say I couldn't quite follow the logic there but <clears throat> and another one indeed which suggested that by using the word I was undermining the legitimacy of the State of Israel. And again, if only that were true. um, (laughs) Before I knew how the book was going to be uh, responded to, my logic was that actually, although in its origins the word, I mean, it comes from the Greek, holocauston that which is completely burnt, that by the time Greek had segued into Latin, had come to mean a burnt offering, and therefore tended to have a connotation of religious sacrifice. Certainly in most European languages, by about the 14th century, it had come to mean a massacre, and we can find lots of examples prior to uh, the Second World War of the word being used in that context. And by, amongst others, Winston Churchill. One of the things, while I was still sort of toying with it, was something that we'll hear a bit more about uh, later on. I was extremely impressed by a wonderful book by, by Dan Stone called Histories of the Holocaust, which actually examines the, the what I might say is a very sterile academic uh, discipline, almost a separate discipline, of arguing about who can and who can't, use the word Holocaust, of which there are thousands of articles being written, and one might call these the Holocaust Monopoly Wars. So that consoled me quite a bit, and I was also consoled by realizing that an awful lot of Jewish thinkers and Jewish historians won't use the word Holocaust, specifically because they want to avoid these religious connotations of sacrifice, and prefer the Hebrew word shoah, which means calamity, calamity. ...or or catastrophe. So having said all that... ...what did I mean or what do I mean... ...by the Spanish Holocaust? Well obviously I'm talking... ...there are always deaths in wars, that goes without saying. I am particularly concerned with what I would call... ...unnecessary civilian deaths. Now these happened in, 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 in many ways... ...apart from the deaths on the battlefield... ...of course there were the victims of bombing raids... There were victims, uh, refugee columns that um, were strafed and bombed and so on. Many victims, many, many who died from hunger and sickness. And above all, of course, those who were the victims of extrajudicial murders. It's a subject to this day that is bitterly fought over in Spain itself because Spain has not had a truth and reconciliation process. One of the most moving, for me, one of the most moving reactions to the book are people who've written to me to say that they think that I've kind of started off something of that that truth and reconciliation process. In fact, uh, because of the depth of the economic crisis in Spain at the moment, these issues, they've certainly not gone away but they are not as much front page news uh, as they have been in recent years. But there is still an awful lot to be done. Now the scale, I said at the very beginning I wanted to draw attention to the scale of death and suffering. Now it's fair to say that in terms of the dead that we know about, because you can only really count the dead if you've got the names. And there are probably tens if not hundreds of thousands of people about whom we will never know. But in terms of the named dead, we know of 200,000 civilian deaths during the the, the Spanish Civil War. And three times as, uh, uh, as many of these were caused by the military rebels, by the Francoist military rebels. Now the numbers that I'm talking about are, as I say, they're the known deaths where the names have been recorded or discovered by subsequent historical research, uh, indeed by exhumation by forensic archaeologists and so on. They do not include those who died from post-war famine. They do not include deaths in Francoist prisons after the Civil War. They do not include, for instance, those who died, I mentioned earlier, (coughs) refugee columns, The two most extreme cases uh, were the the people who fled Malaga after it was captured by the Francoists in February of 1937, who fled along the Spain's southern coast, they fled eastwards to Almeria, being shelled from the sea by battleships, being strafed and bombed from the air. And no one knows, 100,000 people set off, and no one knows how many people arrived it's reasonable to to think that at least 5,000 died in that particular exodus. Equally, there is, uh, I mean, I said there were two. The other big, really big one was the exodus from Barcelona at the end of January 1939, when the Francoists entered Barcelona. 450,000 people trudged in, in snow and awful conditions to the French border and again were bombed throughout by the Luftwaffe, and by the Italian Air Force. And no one knows how many people died in, in that particular exodus. There are others. There's a, there's a story of what's often called the Column of 8,000, which were a group of refugees in the province of Badajoz who got caught uh, on the wrong side of the lines and were ambushed, and it's reckoned that probably only 500 survived. And we, but these are, these are stories that we don't actually know The names, so when I say 200,000 died, they are the ones for whom we have the names. And I said a minute ago that the the difference is about three to one three deaths at the hands of Franco's military rebels against uh, everyone that died within the Republican zone. Now, there are all kinds of reasons. In the case of of those who died in the Republican zone, it's quite easy to know the names. It's easy to know the names for two reasons. In the first place, the Republican authorities that that were trying to put a stop to the disorder because the military coup had led to the collapse of the structures of law and order, which made it possible not just for extreme leftists who, who wanted to... First of all, they wanted to purge Spanish society of, of, of what they, those they perceived as reactionaries. There were those who were outraged by the actions of the, the military and its supporters. So many people who were considered to be supporters of the military uprising were murdered. And of course, it was a wonderful opportunity when the anarchists opened the prisons for common criminals were able to to run riot. Now, the Republican authorities were very keen to put a stop to this. They were not very successful at first. It took them a good four months before they had entirely re-established law and order. But during that time, they made every effort to record the names of those, who the, the, the bodies of those who had been murdered. So that was one way in which it became easier to, to to count the dead on one side. And the other is, of course, that as soon as the Francoists occupied a given area, and particularly once they occupied all of Spain at, 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 by 1939, a massive process began of interrogation. The, the population was invited to denounce their neighbours, so there was a huge body of material now known as the, the, the Causa general this kind of general prosecution which runs into many, many millions of documents that's available to historians today and through that we, we know that the numbers of dead within the Republican zone are, give or take, a 100 or so or 50,000. I can say when we talk about the Nationalist zone, when I say 150,000, but it might be 200,000. There is that degree... Of vagueness. And one of the reasons for that, of course, is the fact that the deaths that took place in the Republican zone took place in the big cities because the Republic, at the beginning of the Civil War, controlled the big cities. The big cities were where there were diplomats writing reports, where there were foreign correspondents of newspapers writing reports. And even had the Republic not been open to exposing what was going on it would have been very very difficult to hide it for that reason in contrast a very large number of the deaths on the Franco side happened in the most remote country districts and so on and and there was no equivalent in terms of international uh, representation so there is this clear difference between the two in quantitative terms in qualitative terms, the differences are even more stark. First of all, I've already said that uh, on the Republican side, the repression, such as it was, took place largely against the authorities, against the will of the authorities, while the authorities were making every effort to put a stop to it. By a combination, as I said before, of extreme leftists, of those very often killings took place in the immediate aftermath of bombing raids, for instance. They were the the consequence of of outrage. And there was, of course, a general outrage against those who were considered to be associated uh, with the military uprising. Now, the biggest difference between that and what happened on, on the Francoist side was, of course, that on the Francoist side, it was entirely deliberate. The entire process was part of a deliberate plan of extermination. It was part of creating what we're saying here tonight was the Spanish Volksgemeinschaft. This is best summed up, I think, by a statement that was made on the 19th of July, that's the day after the, the military coup, by the general who was, if you like, the administrator, the manager whose job it had been to put together the infrastructure of the military coup, General Emilio Mola, who in a speech said, we must exterminate those who do not think as we do, which I think is a, is a rather su- succinct definition of, uh, of a command of Gemeinschaft. Now, Mola, of course, was not on his own. Mola represented a whole body of thinking that permeated the right in Spain and had become very, very prominent in all kinds of ways through best-selling books, through newspapers, magazines, cartoons and so on um, that can be summed up under the phrase the the Jewish Bolshevik Masonic Conspiracy. The idea was that Spain... The real Spain, not to be confused with the anti-Spain, la anti espanya which was the, 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 everything that was considered bad about Spain, was being destroyed by this conspiracy of Jews, Bolsheviks, and Freemasons. Now, at the time when these ideas were being uh, peddled, there were possibly 3,000 Jews in Spain. And almost all of those were refugees, prior to 1933, there were hardly any, and between 1933 and 1936, about 3,000, 3,500 Jews came as refugees from Nazi Germany. Now, you might think, well, how can you have Spain under threat of destruction, Christian civilization under, (coughs) under threat of destruction, by the Jews if there were hardly any Jews to speak of. Remember, Spain was, of course, the country that had uh, expelled the Jews in 1492. Well, in the eyes of the right-wing thinkers who peddle these ideas, this was pr- absolute proof of how sinister the Jews were, that if there weren't any Jews there and they were still threatening Spain, that proved to you just how seriously sinister these people are. Again, one of the things is, you, you, you could either believe me or you could read the book, the, uh, or preferably both. But the fact is that, I mean, one of the chapters in the book is called Theorists of Extermination, and it's an examination of this whole body of thought, which were it not for the fact that it led to such massive killing and suffering, would actually be extremely comical. As I say, Jewish-Bolshevik-Masonic conspiracy, well, there were 3,500 Jews. The Communist Party, at the time that all of this was going on, probably had fewer than 6,000 members. And Freemasons, well, this we do know for an absolute fact, there were 5,000 Freemasons in Spain in 1936. The man who who did most... To promote this idea of the Jewish Bolshevik conspiracy, it was a Catalan priest called Joan Tusquets who wrote many, many books on on the subject. He kept a file card index of the people he considered to be Freemasons, many of whom were executed after the Civil War. As I say, we know from Masonic records there were 5,000 Freemasons in Spain. In his file card index, there were 80,000 names. So, it, again, it gives you the, some measure of the, the way in which the theories are expanded, increased in order to, to justify the killing. Works like, well, I suppose that actually it's, it's a bad phrase, that because there aren't any works like, I was going to say, the, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, you probably know <laughs> about the, the, the unique production of Russian and German writers in the, in, the, in the 19th century which actually a novel that peddles the idea that if you like the, the high command of, of Judaism, of Zionism used to meet it at midnight in the cemetery in Prague and plan the destruction of Christian civilization. Well in Spain in the 1930s Four different editions were published of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion and were all uh, bestsellers. And two of them actually carried commentaries that related the wild accusations of the Protocols to the specifics of um, of the Spanish situation. Now, all of this, of course, has to be put into a social context in the 1930s, prior to the Civil War, Spain uh, had a, a democratically elected government, the Second Republic, which a de- democratically- elected regime, I should say, whose first governments between 1930 and thir- 19- 1931 and 1933, had tried to introduce agrarian reform and a series of basic social reforms. All of this had an immense impact. ...on the most powerful sectors of Spanish society... ...and particularly um, the landowners. And one of the interesting things... ...is the way in which the... ...those who stood most to benefit... ...from the reforms of the republic... ...were precisely those who were smeared... ...as the the puppets of the Jewish-Bolshevik-Masonic conspiracy. So, for instance... One of the things we find is that there is quite a significant literature that goes in parallel to the Jewish Bolshevik Masonic uh, production, which claims that the landless peasantry of Spain were actually not really Spaniards, but they were really Arabs, that they hadn't properly been expelled during that great 600-year civil war known as the Reconquista, when Spain was reconquered from Islam. And so we have lots of examples, particularly of of soldiers, of Spanish soldiers who, of course, were posted to Spanish Morocco, who learned, they were certainly brutalized by the experience, and they learned the techniques of terrorizing civilian populations. And there are lots of declarations by Spanish soldiers which, of senior officers, which make an exact comparison between the Spanish landless peasantry and and the Arabs. And of course the implication is that um, the only way to deal with them is by terror. And that of course is is what happened. Um, It's very bizarre of course that in some of the more extreme of these writings that I've been talking about the, the notion that the Jews were behind everything and the notion that the Puppets were actually almost almost (coughs) Arabs, led to a a rather strange mathematical uh, calculation, which was Jews plus Arabs equals the yellow peril. Again, the logic is beyond a simple soul like me, but it it, it does give you some notion of the almost comical nature of, of, of some of this writing. There were lots of other differences and I'm I'm going to end with what to me is one of the most important which was the attitude to women. Because the rhetoric of the Spanish Second Republic and its constitution embodied at least on paper a recognition of gender equality and the various governments of the Republic had actually done rather a lot in terms of Women's rights, in terms of basic education and so on, and the fact that the policy documents of most of the left-wing parties—the anarchists, the, the the socialists, the communists—all at least, again, on paper, I, I keep insisting on paper—embraced gender equality, because obviously it didn't mean that the men actually did the washing up or looked after the children or anything like that. But at least on paper, there was a a, a commitment. To, to gender equality, and of course, uh, quite a lot of women's organisations on, on on the left. There was no equivalent of this on the Francoist side. And the consequence in the war was that the... For one of the things that you've almost all heard is that, the instance, when Spanish refugees went into France and were being interrogated before being put in French concentration camps the two questions they were most often asked were how many bishops have you murdered and how many nuns have you raped? Well, it, it, it's a sort of standard thing that one of the basic practices of the Spanish revolution was raping nuns. Massive research by the Catholic Church has come up with 13 cases of nuns who were in some or other sexually molested during the Spanish Civil War. In contrast, on the Francoist side, Mass rape was a deliberate instrument of policy, and I think that is one of the most uh, important differences. I mean, as as I've tried to show, there were many. I've gone on too long. I'm going to stop because I mentioned earlier that uh, the work of of Dan Stone was immensely useful for me, as indeed um, collaboration with other colleagues. So I'm going to hand over now to Dan... I have got it the right way around. Jolly good.
2: Thanks, Paul, and uh, thanks very much for the invitation. It's it's, uh, a pleasure to be here tonight. Well, um, it's hard to know. Uh, what to say uh, after that and after Paul's book, which is such a a powerful and empirically rich uh, analysis of uh, Franco's Spain. I suppose um, I should pick up on two things in particular, and the first is the use of the word Holocaust, and the second is the use of the word Volksgemeinschaft. And um, I think what Paul said about his use of the word Holocaust uh, should be taken seriously. I mean, first of all, the word is on the cover of the book, Uh, But apart from a few brief sentences in the introduction, the book then does not pursue a comparativist agenda. It uh, it makes references towards the end about cooperation between the Francoist regime and the Third Reich, but it otherwise does not go into detail about uh, what this word means. And I think uh, Paul's claim empirically to be uh, using the term in order to demonstrate uh, to those who to whom it needs demonstrating that the Franco regime was brutal uh, and every bit as serious as the other European dictatorships uh, is uh, entirely salutary. Those who object, and Paul says there haven't been very many, but it seems to me that there's been a a kind of rumbling about the use of uh, the term Holocaust. Um, Those who object, I think, uh, do so in uh, different contexts. In Spain, to the extent that I know what's going on uh, in the Spanish context, it seems to me that the objection to the term Spanish Holocaust, is often used as an excuse not to respond properly to what uh, Paul is actually saying in, in terms of the content of the book, rather than it's an excuse to talk in vaguely comparative terms about whether one should or should not use the term Holocaust. Those who object from, let's say, a Jewish exclusivist perspective, uh, those who think the Holocaust should be reserved solely to mean the genocide of uh, the Jews of Europe at the hands of the Nazis, um, I think... Uh, reveal that they are unaware of the historiography of the Holocaust. The Holocaust. The term Holocaust, as Paul has already shown, has no stable meaning. Uh, the word has a long history before it came to be associated with the Holocaust, uh, and what the Holocaust is, is in any case constantly under debate, constantly under revision. Uh, we, we're well aware of the fact that there are many books with titles such as the Green Holocaust, the Abortion Holocaust, the Nuclear Holocaust... Uh, and so on and so forth, uh, and at least Paul's is in a, a, a responsible context, which is uh, an appropriate uh, comparison of, uh, of brutal European dictatorships. Uh, so it seems to me that we have nothing to fear from um, using this term Holocaust in, uh, in this context. To give you an example then... Um, I'm sure many people here are already familiar with the debates from West Germany in the mid-1980s known as the Historians' Debate. This was a debate which centred around whether one could or could not compare the Nazi crimes against the Jews with the crimes committed by Stalin, and something that Daniel will come on to soon, I think. The details of the debate are not so important, other than to say that it gave rise to, I suppose, a new... Uh, ability to articulate certain sentiments in in Germany, in West Germany, that one couldn't uh, articulate uh, prior to that point. So the rise of a new uh, nationalist uh, identity politics, although I think, at least amongst academics, that was um, quite uh, quite niftily put down. Um, But... um, Those who follow the historiography of the Holocaust will know that currently there's a similar, there's a kind of new historians debate breaking out which concerns the correct way to contextualize the Holocaust. What is the correct way in which we should understand uh, the Holocaust? And by by that I mean should we compare the Holocaust, should we set the Holocaust into European history by comparing the Third Reich with other uh, either fascist or authoritarian or communist dictatorships Or uh, should the Holocaust be set into a world historical context? And that bespeaks the rise to uh, prominence recently of uh, of world history and uh, global history. And probably the most productive of those debates concerns the relationship between colonialism and the Holocaust. So there's currently, um, in some some quarters at least, quite a, a, a sharp debate concerning whether or not the policies of the Third Reich could be understood as somehow similar to policies pursued by European powers in their, uh, in their colonial territories. Um, and one, one example of this might be the book by uh, my former PhD student, Pete Kakel, the, the American West and the Nazi East, whose very title uh, is designed to make his uh, American compatriots uh, apoplectic, but in which uh, what he is, wants to say is that the logic of, uh, of race and space uh, which uh, accompanied the idea of manifest destiny, can be in some ways compared, although not made synonymous with, the concept of Lebensraum and uh, the expansion of uh, Nazi uh, territories eastwards in Europe. The whole point of comparison and comparative history, we know this from Mark Bloch onwards, uh, is not to say that uh, the, the comparators are the same. It's to try and identify differences as well as similarities. One can't say that any one thing is unique unless you already have in your head some Uh, some notion of comparison with another thing. Uh, And so uh, the idea that um, the Holocaust, uh, i.e. the genocide of the Jews, should not be compared or that one should not use the term uh, to describe anything else uh, seems to me uh, not only narrow-minded but uh, futile in any case, because the nature of uh, his, historiography is that it's const- constantly changing, constantly under revision. And what we mean by uh, any particular term is of course itself always going to be changing. So I entirely welcome uh, the use of the term by, uh, by Paul in, in in this book. More importantly though I think is the concept that we're using here tonight of uh, the Volksgemeinschaft because the, whether we like the title or not is less relevant than whether the content of, of Paul's book means that the uh, the context of uh, the Francoist regime merits comparison with other uh, European dictatorships, in particular the Third Reich. Uh, and I think it's evident from what Paul has said that that is indeed the case. And so there's, there are various things to note here. First of all, it's that um, the Third Reich itself was by no means unique in its attempts to create a national or racial community in which only those deemed acceptable to the regime uh, should be allowed to live. Uh, Most European countries in the interwar period, with the exception uh, of Scandinavia and Britain and um, more or less uh, France and Switzerland, uh, became fascist or authoritarian regimes. All of these regimes uh, were uh, based around some notion of uh, national or biological or racial belonging. Uh, some notion of the the enemy within, the attempt to uh, biologize uh, certain groups in order to racialize and uh, therefore uh, suggest that they had some kind of hereditary uh, illness or uh, some kind of uh, hereditary enmity which was incompatible uh, with national belonging. So the Third Reich was not uh, unique in this uh, this approach. If you think of uh, the nature of politics in interwar Romania or Hungary, you can see this um, domination of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, ultra-nationalist, ethno-nationalist sentiments, and so on. Uh, so um, it's important to note this very wide sweep, I think, of these, uh, these problems. The second thing to note is that um, if we're going to use a term like the Volksgemeinschaft, actually... Uh, it might be possible, I don't know, it would be interesting to hear what, what people think about this, it might be possible to argue that Franco's Spain has a better claim to the use of the term than does the Third Reich, because uh, the Third Reich existed for a mere 12 years. Uh, it was, I think we've, we see in the historiography recently, uh, that the, the notion of a consensus dictatorship is quite a powerful one, that Peter Fritscher and others have shown how rapidly uh, many Germans uh, adapted to uh, the racial policies of, of the Third Reich accommodated themselves and enthusiastically bought into those uh, policies, uh, so we have uh, an attempt to uh, to buy into the idea of the volksgemeinschaft, but we have important we should and, and there 's a large literature on this now, but I think what 's important to note about the term is that it was never realized uh, we, we, in a sense we uh, fall into a trap set by the Nazis themselves if we think that the Volksgemeinschaft was something that was actually uh, made real. This was an aspiration that the Nazis had. Uh, many Germans supported it, but not all of them, uh, and certainly it was the case that um, this idea could not be fully uh, realized. The uh, contrast with Spain is, is quite interesting, I think, and here I'm on shaky ground because my knowledge is uh, is limited, but it seems to me that over a 40-year period, the Franco regime had a much A longer and and in some senses stronger attempt to create this notion of the true Spain and to eliminate those who uh, did not fit that category and Paul has already uh, elucidated uh, what that means and uh, it's clear again that that was not realized there are obviously opposition movements the working class reasserts itself uh, the nationalist movements in the Basque country and and Catalonia and so on Um, it it can't be fully realized Um, but it is, I think, realized to quite a large extent. And I think the point of uh, much of uh, Paul's work in the Spanish Holocaust is to show that it's precisely uh, the killings, the extrajudicial murders after the Civil War that are at stake here, because those are the ones that are uh, key for uh, this process of implementing uh, the Volksgemeinschaft. So those are the two uh, terms, I think, that that really uh, merit some uh, some closer investigation uh, in our uh, discussions uh, tonight. If you think, I mean, all those quotations from uh, Müller and, and Tusquets and, and others in the book suggest to me that um, this notion of a, of a Volksgemeinschaft in Spain is, is really a very important one and, a, and a, a powerful one, and it's not some kind of quip that we're using here uh, to, to provoke uh, a discussion, but is actually uh, a genuine point about uh, Spain and the way in which Spain should be seen in relation to uh, Europe as a whole at, uh, at this period. So, um, I-, I want to make a plea, in a sense, for this wider contextualization, not just of Spain, but of uh, the Holocaust too, because this is a comparison which works both ways. We have a lot to learn by placing the Holocaust in a broader context of nationalism colonialism imperial expansion and so on just as we do from placing franco in a broader european context and i think at that point i'll hand over to daniel because one of the most important of those contexts of course is the russian one thank you
3: Um, thank you, and uh, thanks again for the for the invitation to come this evening. Um, yeah, I sort of—I mean, I essentially wanted to try to um, uh, pick up, in a sense, from where Dan has left off um, with this question of the Volksgemeinschaft um, by sort of drawing the analytical attention uh, eastwards to um, sort of illuminate another case where uh, its its application is in the historiography is very recent, it's still quite tentative, but I think it's, it's actually very, um, very fruitful. So, and in so doing, I want to try to sort of highlight a few um, dynamics which I think are common to all of these brutal projects of uh, state building uh, across Europe in the 1930s and 1940s, um, which sort of um, ostensible ideological differences uh, notwithstanding... Share very considerable areas of uh, common ground, um, and actually, wh- when I was uh, wh- when I was uh, reading Paul's book, um, I mean, it it almost holds up a mirror to uh, practices uh, which um, are, are are central to uh, the Stalinist project from the mid 1930s right through until uh, the dictator's death in uh, 1953. So I suppose m- most of you may have a a, a perception of of, of Russia in which um, the state's persecution is directed primarily against uh, enemy classes and then sort of political uh, opponents. Um, But much of the research uh, has, uh, over the last sort of 15 years or so, uh, has drawn attention to um, a very, very powerful ethnic dimension to uh, Soviet repression. So, the regime um, from the uh, the mid 1930s onwards begins targeting uh, enemy peoples. Uh, It does so initially in border regions as a way of sort of consolidating um, uh, sort of ideologically porous uh, frontiers um, in in preparation for war. But this shift, um, uh, in a sense, um, paves the way for a a much more radical persecution of enemy peoples uh, during and in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. And so what we see is a sort of a, a, almost a fixing of um, enemy identities, which is applied no longer simply to individuals who may themselves have been well, allegedly uh, guilty of uh, anti-regime activity, but starts to be spread uh, to the entire social groups of which they are uh, members and, and uh, of which they, they are representatives. So when the Koreans, for example, uh, are deported in 1937, they are all deported, men, women, children, uh, the elderly, uh, and so on. Um, when the Crimean Tatars are deported in 1944, they are all, again, to a man, woman, and child, uh, deported to uh, Kazakhstan. So so these regimes all... all um, uh, I think possess a, 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 an extraordinary capacity for for identifying and um, moulding and imposing enemy identities on very large sections of their own um, population. I think another thing which is a is a, is a common um, feature. Um, again, I was uh, it struck me reading Paul's book. is is this um, gradual move away from a belief in the possibility of uh, rehabilitation or redeemability. Um, I mean, in the Soviet case, you go from Nikolai Bukharin, sort of leading Bolshevik theorist in 1920, uh, saying that if we believe that human characteristics were fixed... Uh, our entire project will be built on sand. So, you know, very, a very kind of clear belief that human nature was there to be, to be moulded, to be perfected. And, I mean, there are endless uh, quotes from, from Bolshevik, um, Bolshevik uh, leaders and, and ideologues in the 1920s with quite utopian views about the almost limitless possibilities for doing stuff with human nature. But that optimism has all but evaporated um, by the uh, early 1940s, and um, we see in particular this is the case of those who are accused of collaboration with uh, the, the Nazis and their allies in the Western borderlands in the 1940s. So groups uh, whose, um, wh- whose uh, conduct while under enemy occupation has made them um, uh, suspect uh, to the regime. And I think the parallels with the Spanish case here are, are very strong. So when the the Red Army begins to roll uh, westwards, retaking territory from the German army, it wages essentially a war of extermination with anyone associated with collaborationist regimes. Um, If in the 1930s it was still possible to achieve a level of rehabilitation by uh, exemplary conduct in the Gulag, or by, indeed, exemplary conduct in penal battalions on the Eastern Front when the war began, this, this possibility of redemption is effectively foreclosed. So if you were a collaborator, or you are, indeed, associated with uh, collaboration, or if, you, indeed, you are, you are the, the relative of someone guilty of collaboration... This is seen not as um, a, a, a kind of a, a messy compromise with the political and social realities of occupation. It's seen to be, in a sense, a revelation of your inner, your, your sort of your inner core, which has been laid bare by, uh, by the war. And so um, the, the, uh, the, the regime, uh, instead of sending people to the Gulag, as it normally does for, for, for fixed terms... Um, when it comes to, for example, the, the uh, supporters and their families of uh, Ukrainian nationalist parties, they're sent to the Gulag in perpetuity. And it's not until this, this legislation isn't revised um, until um, uh, 1956. Um, and again, the, uh, the, the, the scale of the persecution is ferocious. So in, in, a, in an area of the Ukraine with a population of only 13 million uh, people, uh, 106,000 uh, were executed by the NKVD uh, in, in, in campaigns against uh, so-called uh, Ukrainian German uh, fascists, and about the same number were exiled in perpetuity to, um, the, uh, to the Gulag. And I think again another theme which sort of I, I took from, um, from 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 Paul's book, which I think uh, sort of speaks very much to the Soviet case, but also to um, to, to 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 a host of these. Brutal dictatorships in Europe is is the purpose of the violence. The violence is not simply about repression. It isn't simply about crushing enemies. It's fundamentally a tool of uh, social reengineering. It is about it is about delineating the society of the future. Um, so so uh, violence is uh, it is it is constructive. It is productive. It is educative. It it, it sort of establishes the new the new norms, or it attempts to establish the new norms uh, of a of a future society. And and of course, um, what what emerges from this? I mean, I suppose there's a paradox whereby all of these regimes seek, in one way or another, to impose a kind of homogeneity on their societies, a sort of a homogeneity of um, of 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 belief, uh, and in some sense, a sort of a homogeneity of um, identity, or at least. Publicly permitted uh, identities, but the, but, but the, the, uh, the sort of perverse uh, consequence is what they, they end up doing is creating a society which is differentiated almost along caste lines. So people in the Soviet Union, for example, um, become forever tainted by their association with certain groups, certain, certain nationalities, uh, certain territories which may, for example, have fallen under occupation. Um, and so their, their access thereafter to, to goods, to services, to, to positions of, 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 um, of, of responsibility or power within the state apparatus um, is, is forever structured by this. So, so I think what, you know, what, what emerges from this massive application of uh, violence and repression is a society that becomes massively stratified. Um, right up until the collapse of the Soviet Union, if you applied for a job, uh, you had to state on the application form whether you or any member of your family uh, had uh, been uh, resident on territory occupied by the Germans in World War Two. So this sort of stigma um, is, is 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 passed down literally from um, from parents to their to their children. And I think again to pick up what Dan was saying about um, perhaps Franco having um, uh, almost stronger claims to the to the to the uh, to the category of a sort of Volksgemeinschaft again in, in, in Russia, one of the ways in which this um, this brutal post war settlement is established is by control over official narratives about the the past and of course, in the Soviet Union um, between one thousand nine hundred uh, and forty five and one thousand nine hundred and ninety one there were literally millions of Soviet citizens whose experiences of the war had no legitimate place in any official narratives about the conflict, so they were simply written out uh, of the history. Or indeed, they, 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 or their families' experiences of it, only featured um, in, in in the most um, sort of uh, uh, toe toe curlingly, you know, blood chillingly negative terms as being as being uh, sort of degenerate hirelings of of uh, fascism. Um, And it's only really uh, very recently that that uh, that that sort of hold of the the state uh, over uh, official memories of uh, of persecution has started to weaken. And, of course, it's weakened much more quickly in countries that um, seceded from the Soviet Union after its uh, collapse. But it's left a very, very toxic uh, legacy in which, in a sense, the past is still very much up for grabs uh, in, in ways, I think, that echo uh, the situation in Spain. But I think Helen will have much more to say about that. Thank you.
4: Yeah, well, the past up for grabs is kind of where I'm, I'm going to be. I'm going with the, the, the ten minutes or so that I've got to talk. I mean, I'm really going to talk entirely about the, um, the, 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 af, well, the aftermath, of, in a sense, the institu- institutionalisation of the Civil War, the 1940s, the, the beginning of the, the kind of the, 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 the claim to be called a Volksgemeinschaft, um, which, in a sense, is what we have to talk about, at least in part I suppose, the debate today, is why that's still so unresolved, actually unresolved today. In a sense, the civil war was 1936 to 39. It's a very long time ago. Um, but in a sense, it seems to me that, however bloody and brutal uh, the civil war itself was, of the military conflict of 36 to 39. In a sense, why we're even here today talking about all of this is, in a sense, it's what the military victors wrought, made of that conflict after after military victory in 1939. In a sense, it's it's what the victors, what the the victorious coalition wrought for nearly 40 years, how they made this Volksgemeinschaft, which is, in a sense, what still is not being addressed, which is still the unfinished business, which is still um, the ghost of the feast in Spain today. So, in a sense, it's not so much the trauma of 36 to 39, it's what's what's cast in stone by the institutionalization of all of this by the victorious regime. So, what, what, in a sense, was that about? Uh, well, in a sense the, the the creation of a binary reading of what had happened, you know, the war of liberation rather than ever talking about it as a civil war. Um, By setting up, how did they achieve this? Obviously by setting up this, I mean the basis of the Volksgemeinschaft is basically the setting up of this mass nationwide system of military trials to convict Republicans, which of course trials which are highly judicially unsafe, it's summary military justice, multiple defendants, no investigative process, frequent use of hearsay. Um, But the point isn't to, to, to punish specific, Crimes. It's to forge a new nation through the redefinition of an anti nation, through this mass process, through the the criminalization of categories of what was previously legitimate Republican political behavior. In a sense, it's the reducing of the judicial process to state terror, which, of course, immediately puts it in line with, with, um, with what happened in Stalinist Russia or in, in, in Nazi Germany. So it's creating this, outside, this, this anti-community, the community aliens, the outsider groups who have neither rights nor membership nor, in a sense, do not civilly exist. And what's really toxic here in Spain is how this actually happens. First of all, the regime incites ordinary Spaniards, to denounce their compatriots. The the activating of, of the regime, in a sense, it activates the huge collateral of grief, loss, um, desire for vengeance, anger. All of that is kind of activated because the way in which this military, these, these nationwide military trials are, in a sense, triggered is going to be via mass denunciation. So, so people are actually being asked to denounce their, their, um, their compatriots, and this leads to tens of thousands of death sentences um, and... Even more prisons, at very long prison sentences, and indeed up until 1941, these denunciations can be anonymous as well. So you can just imagine what that actually opens out within Spain. Um, it, the regime, if you like, is channeling these people's lot, their, their losses, their anger, their hurt, their desire for revenge. It's channel, and of course, de- also, it's not just about grief, it's about a massive transfer of property as well, which is also what the, the, the kind of ongoing problem is about. So it's all of this, the, the, this which is being kind of cemented as the, the legitimation of the regime itself. And the the Franco regime maintains this connection to this social base of perpetrators, which is effectively mobilized through the denunciation process. It keeps them mobilized for more than three decades through what I... It's not novel to me, but what is frequently called the discourse of of martyrs and barbarians. That is to say, particularly the extrajudicial dead of the civil war, um, are divided into two categories, and one category, those who died at Republican hands in Republican territory, are christened the martyrs. These people are excavated, exhumed in the 1940s, and created, if you like, as the sacred dead of the regime. And in a sense, it is this, it is this which is really, to this day, never ever been dissolved. This, this, this is the kind of meta problem that still confronts the whole issue of the of the unacknowledged, unreckoned past in. In Spain, the, 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 this, that kind of dead, which, which, is if, which lie, if you like, at the, at the kind of the heart of the legitimacy of the Franco regime, in a sense. that that sacred significance in a sense has never been overcome resolved, dissolved Um, I mean obviously this is all about the the problem is all about the sheer longevity of the Franco regime Um, this explains the particularly lethal power of this binary narrative that it, it wasn't just something that went down in a bunker in the 1940s it went on being perpetuated through many decades of the regime obviously Spain changed hugely socially and economically, everybody knows about that but in a sense the ideological core of the regime and its projection of this binary discourse of martyrs on Barbet, the, the Republican dead were the iniquitous, the morally kind of re- reprobate those who deserve to lie in on marked Graves this kind of binary divide was maintained throughout um, uh, a country which was undergoing an you know, anthropological revolution, a massive industrial revolution of the second industrial revolution of the 1960s changing beyond um, recognition economically, but not in the sense of the, 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 the kind of the, the kind of fossilized carapace of the regime sitting atop it um, now the, all of this was happening in a Europe which, in a sense turned away, legitimized it the cold war franco 's anti communist status in a sense made all of this in, it rendered all of this invisible. Um, again then you, obviously the transition to, to a constitutional democracy in Spain is not the moment at which this past is reckoned because of course it wasn't the overthrowing of the, of the Franco dictatorship, it was um, a negotiated, negotiated settlement dismantling uh, out of it. Um, so, and, and in a sense, um, although um, at that moment there were, there, were, there were some people in Spain who tried to put these difficult stories into the public domain, tried to exhume Republican graves of the late 1970s early 1980s, that was stopped dead by the military coup of 1981, so it wasn't just that that there was a pact of silence that everybody approved of and everybody bought into I think that's kind of um, retrospective telescoping slightly I think that the military coup attempt which failed in ostensible um, objectives on the 23rd of February 1981, but in a sense it succeeded in many other regards politically in Spain and certainly it put the lid back on all of the the, the what would have been, if you like, a, de- a democratising process of opening up all of these stories, um, as, da- as Daniel would put it, of the, the narratives of people that could not be spoken, that were, were literally unrepresentable in, in terms of, um, of the way that the, the past had been scripted. And the problem, in a sense, all of this begins to open up after the end of, it's 1989, it's the the, the, un, the, the ostensible unfreezing of the Cold War, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the unfreezing of the real history of post-1945 Europe, which begins to reverberate back in Spain. You get the development of the memory movement in the 1990s on the basis of work done by many, uh, often local historians, recuperating the empirical history of the, of the, of the repression. Um, and all of this kind of is, is, is fueled to a, a civic memory movement. In Spain in the 1990s which tries to again open up this unreckoned past and to reckon it um, but in a sense although the, the, the Cold War is gone this now seems to be coming up against a whole set of new obstacles rather than you know, the, the exhuming of Republican disappeared, Republican excru- extrajudicially um, murdered um, rather than that kind of being a net benefit, a net socially constructive healing activity um in a sense i once wrote about the idea that you know the the unlocking of of the republican dead would actually dissolve this whole binary of martyrs and barbarians and everybody would be released into some different kind of narrative whereby people could finally understand the complexity of the civil war and what it had really been but instead of that what we get now is new conservative discourses of nationalism inside Spain and across Europe. Inside Spain there are attempts, if you like, to rehabilitate Francoism as a respectable conservative nationalism, which by definition requires the lid to be put on all of this, because otherwise it cannot be recuperated, because if if it can't be scripted differently to how it really was, it's not recuperable. Um, And of course the problem in Spain is that it's coming up against the fact that similar sorts of currents are happening across Central and Eastern Europe. Um, you get you know, Polish right wingers standing up and saying you know, we should build statues to Franco across Europe. He saved Europe for, for Christian civilization, etc. etc. So you've got oops, you've got kind of um, a kind of dovetailing of currents inside Spain and in Europe, across the European continent, which are in a sense mutually reinforcing. So we've come out of the Cold War uh, into what appeared to be the sunny uplands of some more serious and mature historical analysis, um, which might... For once, become also spread out popularly. But suddenly, we've come up against this, this, these new conservative discourses, which in Central and Eastern Europe, as everybody knows, I'm sure, and not only there, of course, but, but particularly there, the, the epicenter, if you like, of where fascists and Nazi collaborators, leaders are being rehabilitated as honest nationalists, con- conservative nationalists. So, in a sense, you can see how. The, the Franco script or the neo francoism there's not much that's neo about it, but the way in which that could be, that, that kind of comes into all of this. And in a sense, that's where we are now. So it seems to me that what's happening is once again, the Francoism is hiding in plain sight. Um, this was a, a, a movement, a project which began. I mean, the problem with the civil war is that in Western consciousness, it's enshrined as a war of two sides. But of course, it didn't begin as that. It began as a military coup against a civilian society, and then, it, it, and then, because of the um, escalation and, particularly, of course, the way in which the Axis dictators. Hitler and Mussolini turned a failing coup into a, 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 viable, a, a viable war, you have, you have the war of two, two sides that then becomes enshrined in European consciousness. But it wasn't that to start with. It was a project which basically was about court, you know, Franco was, a, was Africanista. It was about court-martialing social change and creating a static society in perpetuity. So, again, it, 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 the, the, war, the, the kind of war of two sides kind of allows Francoism to hide in plain sight. And now, in the, in the new kind of brave world of resurgent conservative nationalism across Europe, it seems to be doing it again. I'll leave it there. Okay.
0: Going to get out of the way so that everybody's got a microphone. So but we're going to go to question and answers now for about uh, 20 minutes. We've got four people, so I think probably two questions at a time would be max. Is that okay? Um, yeah, so a microphone will come to you. If you could just say who you are and keep your question fairly short, that would be great. Thank you. uh,
5: John Young, uh, graduate of uh, Royal Holloway. I was studying there in 1975 when Franco died. My question is this. Um, was the amnesia on this subject in the 70s and the 80s the
1: price that Spain had to pay for a uh, transition from dictatorship to democracy? Thank you. Well... on this side young
0: <clears throat> Oh, sorry, sorry, you're going to have two we'll, questions. We'll take oh, two sorry. and then we'll come into the middle on that side. So,
5: a young guy. Um... Hello, I'm currently a student at the moment. I was just wondering that, um, I mean, I'm, I'm not here to sort, of, to sort of portray any ideas which may be sort of incorrect, but from my experience of, I mean, I've been to Berlin and I've been to um, Spain. In Germany, there is a very different sort of, there's a very different sort of treatment of, um, of national socialism and fascism in Germany in Spain, in, the, in Germany, they're willing to sort of embrace that it sort of happened in history, and there's so many memor- memorials to sort of you know the the victims victims of the Holocaust over there. However, I think in Spain, as you just go out of Madrid, there is a very big, big, big monument to Franco, the Valley of the fallen, and recently, Mariano Rajoy has decided that he wants to reopen it to the public and build a cafe, which I find incredibly. It absolutely disgust me as a young person. And I think and I was just wondering, do you think that the new the inability to sort of to sort of understand what happened and this sort of, you know, this as was mentioned, this idea that you know that you know that Spain is trying to deny what has happened or even the government is trying to deny what has happened is causing more is causing problems to Spain and will cause further problems in the future when it comes to when it, if these problems were arise again so.
1: well, if I can start, um, I think the two questions run in together actually the the whole process of forgetting if that or, or not remembering it 's more that i mean forgetting is a sort of passive thing that uh, i 'm getting to be very good at, uh, but the not remembering is actually a, is of course an active thing the what in Spain is called the Pacto del Olvido, the, the the Pact of Forgetting, is often thought of as having a legal basis, and the nearest to a legal basis it has is that, on the fifteenth of October, nineteen seventy-seven, there was passed an amnesty law, and that amnesty law stated that judicial proceedings could not be taken against anybody who had committed. Uh, acts of um, against the human rights of uh, or another, in favour of the dictatorship, it committed acts against the human rights of citizens or, and that of course meant all the servants of the dictatorship and it wiped out as a stroke the possibility of any judicial proceedings against any of the, of the perpetrators of the repression and on the other side it rendered impossible the, the idea of any judicial proceedings against those who were guilty, considered to be guilty of acts of terrorism against the previous regime. Now, of course, none of that even looked at the whole issue of the hundreds of thousands of trials of people who were, consider, you know, were opponents of the regime irrespective of whether they'd actually done anything. Act of terrorism, of course, meant act of resistance, so that largely it certainly in terms of people who were likely to be a, a, around and beneficiaries of the law, largely meant people from ETA or some of the extreme Maoist and, and Trotskyist factions. But that was the only thing. And effectively, that wiped out the possibility I and mean, in, in one level, it's a good thing, it wiped out the possibility of judicial proceedings. It was taken as meaning that there should be no investigation. Now, of course, armies of local historians in particular have been borrowing away, even before the death of Franco, but certainly from the death of Franco, and have done amazing work. I mean, it's uneven across Spain, but have done massive work on within what in Spain has come to be called historical memory, very difficult, I mean even as I'm sure you know in 2007 there was passed a law of historical memory politicians of both right and left believed, and I know this because I interviewed a lot of them at the time believed that it was absolutely necessary not to look at the past and it's certainly the case that leaving aside this particular amnesty law, there was a popular feeling in the wake, in the immediate wake of the death of Franco, of never again. And the never again meant never another civil war, never another dictatorship. And that at first certainly fed into an acceptance of the so-called Pact of Forgetfulness. But over time, I mean that that dissipated and certainly by the nineteen eighties, more and more people began to feel that the more should be done in terms of commemorating the dead. Not not and I hasten to add, not in terms of seeking judicial revenge, not in in, 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 in taking people to court and punishing them. But in commemorating the dead in knowledge. What one of the things we do in the Canyada Blanc Centre is we, we, we publish what I like to think of is sort of cutting edge research on contemporary <laughs> Spain. One of our most recent publications, in fact, was Helen Graham's book, The War and Its Shadow. The book that came out after that is called Shooting the Messenger. And it's a translation of a book by a Spanish scholar about all of the obstacles put in the way of local historians. Well, not all of them, it's a series of chapters. And it makes really alarming reading about the way in which individuals effectively had their lives ruined by the powerful who blocked any attempt to to investigate the past. So, you know, the the question uh, was it nece- was the pact of of, of forgetting necessary? Uh, I think I'd have to do have a Weasley answer and say probably for the first five years, but not since. Anyone want to go in on the
4: well, other I question? Mean, but, uh, in a sense, I mean, Paul said it all, but. The, the, the problem that the question I really want to ask is why we've still why we still got it to a certain extent. I mean, the indirect censorship that still exists in terms of. I mean, obviously, you know, if you if you look on, um, it, it, we know in Spain there's a memory movement that all over Spain is doing things that you know in 2010 in in in, in the central square in Madrid they had a, a huge demonstration with this huge kind of. Uh, photograph of a of a co- of a of a, an exhumation of a grave. There's a the, the, there's a whole kind of civic movement. You know, interestingly, the civic society—the very thing that the Franco regime you know, attempted to, to, to annihilate. But it never makes it into the media. There is a kind of media blackout on all of this in terms of mainstream media. Um, all that we think of, you know, five of the six of the best documentaries that have been made on this difficult past in the last five or seven years. None of them, well, one, The, 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 the Lost Children of Francoism, finally got a national airing on television the numbers of these documentaries that can't get an airing i mean one of the best ones was made in 2008 by a pair of swedish journalists and they are desperately it's been fated in film festivals in spain it still can't get a, it can't get any television channel to show it there's a kind of there's something very strange still going on that this is still not is still not kind of open Uh, and rather than what was possible in, you know, between well, at the time of the transition I I think a more fruitful question is what is the problem now? Why is this still so difficult? You know um, because it's a democratic deficit you know, that's what it is
1: Well presumably and this goes back, I mean, to the question the the, the second question about Rajoy and the, the Partido Popular the current ruling party in Spain These are sons of Franco, Um, and it goes back to what I was saying earlier about the the 40 years of brainwashing that took place. Um, For for many people who grew up under Franco, maybe not even direct beneficiaries of the regime, but but brought up entirely within the ideology of the regime... It feels like a betrayal of their past, you know, haven't been brought up. Like it's like people in Russia who still think Stalin was terrific. And have, there are millions of them. And there are millions of Spaniards who still think that Franco was terrific. Um you know, and they, there you go. As far as the Valle de los Caídos, which for those of you who don't know is this huge mausoleum that was chiseled out of solid rock and the bit that's chiseled out of the rock is larger than most cathedrals. And there then has a, there's a huge tower, uh, a, a huge crucifix above it, on the the bar of which you could uh, you could drive, you could have buses passing both sides. It's so huge. Um, I mean, it's always been open to the public, um, and the question is what to do about it. Personally, uh, you know, given that it was built with slave labor, I think it should be a monument to the victims of, of the Franco regime. And that would simply involve changing the signage. As it is at the moment, it's a sort of place of pilgrimage for, uh, for Francoists. But actually, I think, as with so many things, time will be the solution because to maintain it, cost far more money than any spanish government could possibly afford and quite soon it will have to be closed off because the tower is going to fall on somebody or on a lot of somebody's and there are going to be accidents
0: it will rot and that will be the end of it if it's okay we'll just we'll take two more questions yeah we'll take somebody upstairs and then i think there's somebody over this side maybe not there's one, that, one on the yeah just wanted to see if there's anybody on that side. So, okay, you and then the person at the back, and I think that will have to be it.
4: Um, hi, um, I really enjoyed the talk. Um, I'm going to be doing um, History in English next year at university. So I was wondering, a lot of what you've all been saying has been about the varying kind of political um, forgetfulness within the varying regimes in Europe that, relate, um, that result from the Second World War and its aftermath. Um, and from my conception of, hi- of European history, it seems that mainly it's countries that did not have a proper either political system of political consciousness and I think that particularly comes up in the Second Republic of Spain and so I was wondering to what extent you feel that um, the lack of a developed political consciousness and identity and even system really shaped um, this pact of forgetfulness that's existed in Spain ever since
0: Thank you as gentleman at the back
6: Uh, Yes, uh, her name's Colin. I'm just a man from the street, but my mother was a uh, refugee from Nazi Germany. And I'm just picking up on that comment of of the Holocaust or Nazi Germany and and Franco's Spain. Um, I think what needs to be said, whilst after the Second World War, the Germans were very quick to say, sorry, wieder gut machen, uh, there were the trials. The flowering of the Holocaust industry, if I can use that word, was not until, I would say, 70s, 80s, there was very little literature when I grew up about it there was not quite the pact of forgetting but there was also a period of silence um, while people perhaps were digesting it Um, and I mean the the film, The Pity and the Sorrow, now that was a, a landmark, now that was quite early late 50s, early 60s, I don't know, but there was also a period when people, shall we say, took stock so, I, you know, it, it takes time. And may I just say, your idea of the value of the fallen, I agree entirely. It's a, a fantastic monument to, to fascism in the negative sense.
0: If you each a chance to make some do last observations. Do
4: you want to comment on the Not on the Do you want to do the last one? Well, do you do so? the first one. Okay. Yeah, um, I mean, in a sense, the... The Franco regime, one of its major objectives, was to, you know, to deconstruct everything that the 30s had represented in terms of, you know. Um, it- Cast, casting, casting it, casting the values in reverse, if you like. But in a sense, the, the nature of, I suppose, of developments in the 1960s, which were the you know the coming to Spain of consumerism, of you know material values, the, the very accelerated development, the emergence of a new sort of sociological Francoism in the urban centres, the new burgeoning urban centres where there was this kind of you know, like this white collar managerial middle class which was nurtured by the regime which was given its small flat and its small car and which the regime very cleverly reinvented itself in terms of being, presenting itself as the bringer of material plenty. I mean in a sense whichever regime had been in power in, you know, post, post, in, in Spain in the, the age of the European economic miracle uh, with sunshine and whatever would have been able to do what in a sense Franco, so in a sense it's nothing specific to the Franco regime but the creation of this material culture you might say was an important part of depoliticizing Consciousness, if you like, and creating other things to fill to fill the vacuum. I mean, obviously Spaniards aren't a however you know, with all the best of intentions of Franco for you know one great and free Spaniards were never a homogenous you know never a homogenous community. So you can't really talk about. The, 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 uh, uh, you know, a general level of political or social consciousness. There's all kinds of different people with different kinds of views vis-a-vis the regime or vis-a-vis the value of consumerism or remain, you know, the memory of the 1930s but I do think that um, again the, longev- the longevity of the regime had a great deal was, a, was very responsible for this kind of flattening out of the, the, memory, of, the, the memory of different possible futures if you like that what, you know, what the 1930s might have arced and meant but
2: I don't if that was the question. Yeah, yeah, I,
1: think it was. I mean, there's also another point. Sorry, before Dan comes in to make a comment on the, the emergence of the Holocaust industry. The, I think one should never forget, because there's a lot of criticism of the transition to democracy in Spain and the democratic deficit and so on. But I think a lot of those who are most vehement in denouncing the transition do rather forget the atmosphere of fear in which it took place. It it should never be forgotten that between 1975 and 1977, Spain's armed forces believed that their function was not to defend Spain from external enemies, but was to defend the Franco regime from internal enemies. There was the Civil Guard, which is a a rural army of occupation with exactly the same view. There was the armed police, the so-called grises, la policía armada. There were 200,000 phalangists who were were armed, who had gun licenses. All of these people did not want democracy. So it was inevitable that that, it had to be very much a compromise, a transaction and so on. Sorry, I just wanted to say that.
2: Thank you. Well, I mean, I have far too much to say about your comments Uh, than I can fit in five minutes, so I guess I'd just say I I prefer to speak of the the emergence of Holocaust consciousness rather than the Holocaust industry. I mean, it's not as if the elders of Zion suddenly decided that uh, people needed to know more about it and, you know, set us all to work. So uh, there's there's something um, more organic and uh, widespread going on than I think can be summed up by the use of the term industry and secondly i think whilst it's obviously the case that today the holocaust or some notion of the holocaust probably one that actually is rather uh, devoid of any content is central to european and even world commemorative structures you know we have a european uh, holocaust memorial day the un has recognized holocaust memorial day actually um Before the 1970s and the 1980s, there wasn't uh, a total silence. I think that the the genocide of the Jews was widely known about uh, amongst the general population, though not conceptualized as the Holocaust in the way that it is today, uh, but could be recognized in in a gesture, in various images, in well-known photographs, and so on and so forth. There's actually quite a large literature from uh, the the wartime and immediate post-war period, uh, which has, uh, to a large extent, been forgotten, but recently recovered by uh, by historians. So uh, there, wasn't, uh, there certainly wasn't the cacophony that there is today, but there was nevertheless, um, there wasn't total silence either. I would also rather dispute the notion that the, the, the Germans rushed to apologise after World War II. I, mean, I certainly think that uh, the GDR, for example, after its creation in 1949, simply Uh, decreed that as an anti-fascist republic, uh, it was not the legal heir to the Third Reich, and had nothing to do with the Third Reich, and that was the end of the matter. Uh, The fact that most of the uh, East German uh, Gestapo men uh, swiftly uh, found new careers in the Stasi was, I suppose, neither here nor there. Um, And and the the, fascist structures and mentalities of thought that uh, are obvious in the GDR uh, also uh, belie that that claim. And in in West Germany, too, I think you you can see the same, that the uh, there were many people who honestly um, tried to enter into some kind of uh, relationship of um, of sorrow and and, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, But still, uh, Adenauer's, uh, I don't know, for example, the the 1952 uh, Luxembourg Treaty, which paid reparations to Israel, was clearly as much about Adenauer insisting that West Germany could function as a a normal sovereign state on on the international stage as it was about actually uh, genuine remorse for anything that the Third Reich had done. So um, whilst it's true that today Germany is... Uh, probably such a leading proponent of coming to terms with the past that, that critics um, would even say that the Germans need to be careful of uh, taking too much pride in their own sinfulness. Um, nevertheless, you're right, of course, I, mean, we, it's, I think it will be some time before we see a, a monument to the Armenian genocide in Istanbul. And so uh, what the Germans have done is, is, never, is still, as you say, quite remarkable. So I would, I would uh, go along with that.
3: If I I just, if I just, I mean, I suppose, yeah, I think that this um, uh, forgetfulness seems to be the default option in most of these um, states. So, whether it's Russia or the Baltics or uh, Hungary or Romania, there are in all of these uh, societies very significant sections of the population with a very strong investment um, in in uh, sort of narratives about the past that endorse their own, I mean, understandably, uh, very keenly felt sense of, of, of injustice. And I think that in, that, in, a, in, a, in a space in which sort of um, uh, these uh, tragedies of families and communities become institutionalized in, 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 a, in, a, in a political system which impedes the emergence of competing voices, it actually becomes, over time, it's, it, it sort of almost congeals as something that is very, very difficult to to deconstruct. So, you know, most, most, uh, most Russians today, even those who are, you know, I mean, there are some, you know, who are against, uh, against uh, Putin's regime, Um, to to impugn the performance of the the, uh, Red Army in in World War II or to draw attention to uh, the behavior of of the Red Army in, in the Baltic states in 1939 and again in 1944 is almost to attack something sacred. I mean, it's become so embedded in contemporary Russian national identity and anyone who wants to experience this firsthand only has to take a trip to... Moscow or Saint Petersburg on the on the 9th of May uh, ev- every year uh, to watch the victory in, in Europe um, uh, sort of celebrations. Um, it becomes very very difficult to to to, to challenge these uh, these narratives, and I think it, it's. I it, mean, I think yes. I mean, Germany for complicated reasons, uh, um, some of which Dan alluded to, is certainly um, the, the exception. I think, uh, which sort of proves the rule.
2: Last word. I, oh, I just
1: want to say thank you to, to my colleagues The, the you know, colleagues f- f- collaboration with whom over the years either by reading their books or by talking to them has been um, of great inspiration to me and it's been terrific to have them with me tonight and uh, I'm very proud to have them with me so thank you
0: Just before you go, I'd like to say thank you to LSE Events for putting this event on in the usual uh, easy manner. Uh, I know some people have just joined us, but it's very nice to be having people, men and women from the street, join us as well as our own students. But particularly, uh, we wanted to thank our guests tonight, Helen, Daniel, Dan, and most of all, of course, Paul Preston, for sharing their thoughts with us this evening. Thank you.